You know, it was January of 1968 that the USS Pueblo was hijacked in the North Korean uh, area around the, the country. And this event that took place, it created an 11-month standoff in which there were sailors who were taken captive, 13 of which were put in confinement. One of the things they had to suffer and endure was they would have to sit at tables on these chairs for long periods of time. There was a certain point each and every day in which the person sitting at the head of the table would have someone come in and beat them senselessly. And each and every day, for three straight days, the person sitting in the first chair took the beating. And over and over, the same guy took it to the point in which finally the guys realized he's not going to make it another day. So they decided to rotate that a new person would sit in that chair each and every day to take the beating for their brother. Motivated by love, motivated by loyalty for their brother, we saw these men who were willing to be a substitute to protect their brother. This idea of substitution is what we see happening in Mark 15. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 15. We are towards the end of a sermon series through the gospel of Mark as a faith family in a series called On the Move. This is a fast-paced, hard-hitting book in which we see Jesus doing incredible works. He is the suffering servant who came to give his life as a ransom for many. We have been studying the final days of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross. We have seen him as he has celebrated the Passover with his disciples. He has prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has been betrayed by Judas Iscariot. He has been abandoned by his disciples. He has faced the Sanhedrin. He has been denied three times by Simon Peter. Jesus now stands trial before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, and that is where we pick up in Mark chapter 15. The scripture says this, as soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, you say so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them, as was his custom. Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, Then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again, they shouted, Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. 
Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Jesus here is standing trial before Roman governor Pontius Pilate. And so for this morning, I want us to notice together as a faith family what took place at this trial and what this means for you. I want you to see first the accusations of Jewish leaders. The accusations of Jewish leaders. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish high court. It was made up of 70 Jewish leaders. They were a type of supreme court of Jewish law, and yet they did not have the authority to carry out a death sentence. Only the Roman government had the authority to execute someone for a crime. Well, what was Jesus' crime? Blasphemy. Remember back in chapter 14, verse 62, where Jesus says, and you're going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, where Jesus clearly and directly and distinctly went on record, I am the Messiah. And yet there was a problem for the Sanhedrin. Blasphemy is not a punishable crime in a Roman court of law. And so the Sanhedrin's job was to convince Pilate that Jesus had committed high treason against Rome and therefore be sentenced to death. So first thing in the morning, verse one, they tie up Jesus and they take him to Pilate. Now, as a Roman politician, Pilate knew how to play politics. He knew how to position himself to find favor with Rome. And as governor of Judea, Pilate had three main jobs, collect taxes for Rome, oversee the army, and keep the peace. Those are the three things he was responsible for. Now, Pilate had authority to also decide capital punishment cases, which is what this situation is. Now, as we have seen In Mark's gospel, he gives very brief snapshots of the life and ministry of Jesus, where other gospel writers like Matthew and Luke and John, they give much more greater detail. Well, in Luke's gospel, the Sanhedrin accused Jesus of three things. He's misleading our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. And he claims to be Christ, a king. Well, it's that third point where Pilate's ears perked up. So verse two, he asks, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds, you say so. Uh, Another way to phrase that, you said it. Yep, you're right. I am a king. John gives us more content of this conversation in his gospel in which Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You're a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this. And I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus is telling Pilate, I have a greater kingdom than anything in this world. And I am the king of this kingdom. 
This is the good confession before Pontius Pilate that Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 6.13. Jesus is going on record and declaring himself king. This is an earth-shattering declaration. Jesus is announcing that he is king of an even greater kingdom. Well, sensing that their charges may not stick, the chief priests, they begin lobbing, look at verse 3, these accusations against Jesus. These religious leaders, they're bloodthirsty, and so they turn it into a kangaroo court. Well, what is shocking to Pilate is that Jesus isn't responding. Look at verse 4. Aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer. Pilate was, verse 5, amazed by Jesus' silence. He is stunned at the poise of Jesus in the midst of such accusations. Usually people are cowering before Pilate, usually begging and pleading for him to show them mercy, not to take their lives. Not Jesus. Jesus is unfazed by these accusations that are being made up against him. Jesus is not terrified of these accusations that are being lobbed against him by these religious leaders. Why? It's because Jesus, who is the truth, he knows where lies ultimately come from. Do you remember what Jesus said to these religious leaders back in John chapter 8? Jesus said to them, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies." You see, Satan is a liar. He hates the truth, and it is impossible for him to speak the truth. It's not in his nature. And if you are in Christ, he is your enemies. And one of the names that Scripture gives him is the accuser. We see this in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, where Satan is before God and he is accusing Job. We see where he is one who accuses God's people. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, it calls him the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night. You see, Satan is relentless in his accusations and he accuses God's children continually. Satan is your accuser and he stands before God seeking to lessen God's love for you. Thankfully, Romans chapter 8 is your counterattack. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Though Satan has a laundry list of sins of you and I that we have committed, that he can throw in our face, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word.
The blood of Jesus speaks a better word than your past. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the sins in your life. And though Satan can throw his accusations at you, he cannot speak over the volume of the blood. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Martin Luther said it like this. I love this. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Jesus is greater than than our accuser. Jesus is greater than the accusations that the enemy throws in your face. In the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, Christian finds himself being accused of his sins and his failures in the valley of humiliation by Apollyon. Christian responds to Apollyon, all this is true and much more which you left out. But the prince I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. And at the mention of Christ's forgiveness, Apollyon flies into a rage. You see, Satan, the accuser, hates the fact that his accusations are overcome by the grace of God and Christ. Satan hates God's mercy. He hates the gospel. He hates that he has been disarmed and defanged by the cross. He hates the complete and total forgiveness that you and I have in Jesus. So now, as followers of Christ, as those who belong to Jesus, knowing that Satan's accusations against us are muted by the blood of Christ, we are now free to pursue Christ's likeness. John says it like this in 1 John 2. My little children, I'm writing you these, these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. When the enemy is lobbing accusations at you, you have a defense attorney. You have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he defends your case and declares that you are not guilty based upon not what you do, but upon what he has done in the gospel. So when the enemy starts throwing your sins in your face, when he accuses you of what you think and what you say and what you do, please know you have a defender. You have an advocate. He goes and he pleads your case before the Father and all of the accusations are, that are leveraged against you, they cannot hold because Jesus took your guilt at the cross. 
You see, when the accuser says, look at your sin, God says, look at my son. Jesus' accuser and your accuser is silenced by a bloodstained cross. Secondly, what we see here in the text is the substitution of Jesus for Barabbas. According to Luke's gospel, after Pilate's first interrogation, he wanted to pass the buck. He wanted someone else to have to deal with Jesus. And so Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, the ruler of Galilee. But when Jesus arrived, Herod only wanted to be entertained by a miracle of Jesus. But Jesus refused to do that. And so Herod and his soldiers, they mocked Jesus, dressed him up in bright clothes, and they send him back to Pilate. Now, Pilate saw through the shenanigans of the Sanhedrin. He knew that their accusations against Jesus were baseless. These Jewish leaders, they weren't loyal to Rome. They were jealous of Jesus' popularity with the people. Look at verse 10. For Pilate knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. Pilate knew that Jesus was being railroaded by these chief priests. These Jewish leaders, they despised Jesus because the people of Israel loved him more than them. And they envied how Jesus was popular and adored by the people. But Pilate also knew that if he acquitted Jesus, he would have a riot on his hands. If word got back to Rome that Pilate did not have control over Judea, he could lose his position. Now remember, it's Passover. Hundreds of thousands of Jews have descended in pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival. And so what's Pilate supposed to do? He knows Jesus is innocent, and yet he doesn't want a revolution on his hands. Well, Pilate has a plan. It was his custom at Passover that he would release a prisoner for the people at Passover. So Pilate gave the people of choice as to who he would release. But his plan was foiled when the chief priest stirred up the crowd for Pilate to release Barabbas to them instead of Jesus. Now, who's Barabbas? Well, verse 7 tells us that he was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. Barabbas was a rebel against Rome. He was probably a zealot. A zealot was an anarchist, someone who was a Jew who sought to overthrow Roman rule with violence. The text tells us that verse 7, he was a murderer. And so when Pilate gives the opportunity for clemency for a prisoner to go free, he assumed that the crowd would want Jesus. But the chief priests, they're provoking the crowd to release Barabbas instead. What we see in the situation of Barabbas is a picture of the doctrine of substitution. This has been God's design from the very beginning. When our first parents sinned in the garden, God killed an animal who would cover the sin and the shame of Adam and Eve. The death falls upon the animal, so it does not fall upon them. Ultimately, that was a picture pointing to an even greater substitute that would one day come that we see here in the text. 
We see that this is God's design in, in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, where he creates this animal sacrificial system in which these substitutes, these sacrifices would come forth, and they would provide a temporary atoning of sin. We see when God instituted the Passover meal, the lamb was substituted for the death of the firstborn. Well, in Mark 15, Jesus is the substitute for Barabbas. Even though Barabbas sinned, even though Barabbas was guilty, even though Barabbas deserved death, Jesus stepped in and took his place. Don't look now. But that's a picture of what happened for me and you. We were just like Barabbas, guilty. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are the ones who deserve eternal death because we have sinned against a perfect, holy, and eternal God. And yet, we have a substitute we have Jesus Christ who comes in and takes our place. Though it should have been us who had died for what we were guilty of, Jesus is our substitute who takes our place. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. You see, you and I were just like Barabbas. We committed high treason against God through our sin, and those sins deserve capital punishment. Our sin meant that we were guilty before God. The wages of sin is death, and that is what all of us deserved. But when we did absolutely nothing to deserve it, nothing to earn it, Jesus steps in and takes our place. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We deserve death, but Jesus died in our place as our substitute. You see, in the gospel, Jesus died the death you deserved so that you can go free. This is what God offers to you. He offers you clemency, freedom, a pardon in which you're no longer under the condemnation of sin and death and hell. Jesus says, no, I'll take all of that for you. So now Jesus, your substitute, takes your place. Now you are free to go. Jesus, the innocent one, he bore the punishment that we deserved, that we are like Barabbas and that we are free to go. We're no longer under condemnation. This should have been our death 2,000 years ago. We should have been the ones on the cross. That was what we deserved. But Jesus says, no, I'm going to take it for you. I'm going to take the wrath uh, that your sins deserve. I'm going to take them fully and completely upon me at the cross. If you want to know how much God loves you, look at the cross. If you want to know God's, his, his work on your behalf, look at the bloodstained cross where Jesus volunteers and says, I'm going to take your place so that you don't have to. 
I'm going to sit in the seat of suffering as your substitute. I'm going to take your place so that you can go free. This is what God offers you in the gospel, and it's completely free. It is grace. It is yours for the receiving. You don't got to work for it. You don't got to earn it. You don't have to do penance. You don't have to do all these things or make these promises to God that if I do these things, will you give this to me? He says, no, it's yours. Take it. And when you receive this gift, that's when everything changes about you. The gospel transforms your heart and your life forever. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He is a substitute. He's taking Barabbas' place. And that is a picture of what he has done for you. Jesus took your place. Jesus in your place. Oh, how great is the love of the Father that he has lavished upon us that we would be called sons and daughters. And that is what we are all because of what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. And so our accusations are silenced. The substitution is secured. I want you to see third and finally the fear of man in Pilate. Pilate is in a pickle. He is in a peculiar situation. The man who he knows is innocent has been substituted for a murderer. Listen to what Luke says. Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people, and said to them, you have brought me this man as one who misleads the people, but in fact, after examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with those things you accuse him of. Neither has Herod, because he sent him back to us. Clearly, he has done nothing to deserve death. See, Pilate is ready to let Jesus go. But the temper of the crowd has gone from a simmer to a boil. They're shouting over and over again, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Wanting proof of his crimes, verse 14, Pilate asks, why? What has he done wrong? And the crowd just shouts louder, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The political pressure was on. Did you notice what Mark said about Pilate in verse 15? Look at the text. Wanting to satisfy the crowds. Ignoring his conscience ignoring what his wife told him when she had a dream about Jesus saying, have nothing to do with this man. Here is Pilate not even understanding truth as he is standing right in front of him. And Pilate had to decide who he was going to please. And he chose the crowd. He knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew that he didn't deserve death, for he hadn't committed any crimes. And yet, he wanted to satisfy the crowds. Proverbs 29, 25 says, Fear of man is a snare. It's a trap. But the one who trusts in the Lord will be protected. What about you? 
when the crowd begins to persuade you to walk away from the truth. When your boss demands that you do something that you know goes against Scripture. When your friends begin to mock you for being passionate for the Lord Jesus Christ. When you find that the ways of this world are pulling you away from Jesus. When people are pressuring you to sin against the Lord. How will you respond? Pilate chose the praise of the crowd. And it led to the death of Jesus. What about you? When the pressure is on, when peer pressure feels heavy, when those in authority above you are influencing you to walk in foolishness away from the Lord and away from the scriptures, how will you respond? Well, I implore you this morning through the impact point of this is how I want to shepherd us as a faith family to respond so that when you are being pressured, when fear of man begins to take hold of your heart, what do you do? Look by faith upon Jesus, your substitute. Love him, trust him, and follow him forever. It's a decision you have to make, and you have to make it before you're put in that situation. You need to make up your mind right now of whose allegiance you want right here and now. Do you want the temporary, empty praise of the world or the eternal and perfect affirmation of the Lord? You have to choose. You see, Jesus gladly took the chair of suffering so that you can go free. How can we give him anything less than our best? Jesus is the one as our substitute who took the beating that we should have deserved, which, Lord willing, we're going to look at next week in verse 15. That Jesus is the one who stepped in and took your place. He deserves our best, y'all. And the reality is this. In Mark 15, Jesus is in the court of Pilate. But make no mistake, there's coming a day in which Pilate will stand in the court of Jesus. And he will one day give an account. And so will you. There's coming a day in which you will go one-on-one -on -one with the Lord and give an account of your life. Hebrews 9.27 says, man is destined to die once, and after this, the judgment. If you have not trusted in Jesus as your substitute, that's a terrible day. It's a day to fear. And so I invite you today, if you don't know Christ, would you turn from your sin and believe in him? Would you receive him as your substitute, as your savior, as king and Lord of your life? Would you surrender your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because when you do that day of court, 
when you stand before the Lord, that can be a very good day. A day of celebration. A day of affirmation. A day in which you get to hear, well done, good and faithful servants. And that day of reward and celebration is found when you love him and serve him and follow him forever.